Do you think we know what's down below the surface of the ocean? You know, everything that's down there? Curious about what's in the water when you go swimming at your favorite beach on your favorite lake? Well, we've got answers to all this on episode 78 of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Come on, Lewis, let's go find Lily. Did you know? Hey, Lily, how you doing? I'm good. You know what? I think it's really good we know what's hidden in the water, things we can't see, or, you know, the, maybe they're too small, or maybe we they're just... We don't know. Maybe we just don't That's know. That's the trick. We don't know what's hidden in the water. I know. So I've been talking to our, our friends at Swim Drink Fish Canada about their Swim Guide app, and uh, we're going to have that interview coming up in a little bit. Yay. <laughs> but what do you got for us? Well... Scientists have been busy exploring the ocean floor. Surprise, surprise, new stuff. Not at all. And uh, they just discovered 19,000 undersea volcanoes. Wow, that's a lot of untapped energy, eh? Holy mackerel. Yeah. No, the team of scientists used satellite imagery to discover the 19,000 seamounts, or ancient volcanoes, uh, at the bottom of the ocean, the search was conducted out of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in California. Only 20% of the ocean floor has been mapped by ships, and there might be thousands more seamounts yet undiscovered on the ocean floor. So why is it the scientists are just now sort of discovering all these uh, volcanic uh, seamounts under the surface of the ocean? So apparently volcanic activity on the ocean floor creates the seamounts, which can rise to around 3 to 10 kilometers high. Uh, smaller seamounts, which are less than 2 kilometers, are harder to find because, according to scientists, they tend to form near mid-ocean ridges where magma pushes through Earth's thin and fractured crust. So they, they rise thousands of meters in the darkest of the deep sea, putting unsuspecting submarines at risk. So that's not fun for the submarines. So how did they find these? Like, I mean, they've had technology, obviously. They found other seamounts. What's different? Well, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, three quarters of all Earth's volcanoes activity happens underwater. But just as on Earth, the undersea volcanoes aren't all active. Ships can detect them via sonar, which is a technique that uses sound waves to bounce off the ocean floor, but that can happen only when the ship happens to pass over the seamounts. Hmm. So this is exactly what happened a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. back when a team of scientists mapping the ocean floor using sonar off British Columbia discovered a huge seamount rivaling Mount Baker. It's so big that nautical charts are going to need to be redrawn. The script scientists used a different technique, which is also interesting, called satellite altimetry, which lets scientists measure changes not in the seafloor itself, but actually in the sea surface height. A change in the height of the sea surface can, you know, in turn reflect an increased pull of gravity coming from the presence of the seamounts or the volcanoes on the seafloor. So let me get this right. The volcano or seamount is down below. It's very magnetic because it's a huge chunk of rock and lava, and it's pulling down on the surface of the ocean, creating a sort of a divot? No. <laughs> the no? No. That's wrong. The opposite. The, the opposite. Yeah. Okay. The larger the mount, the more its gravitational pull draws in seawater on top. I got that right. Oh, it draws it in. Yeah. Oh, it creates a mound. Well, yeah. So huh. it causes the ocean to build up on top of the mounts. And that's what the satellite measures, humps, not dips. Isn't that funny? 
So recent advances in the accuracy of satellite data from the European Space Agency, Cryosat-2 satellite, and SARAL, the Indian and French Space Agency version, they changed the picture. Because of these new satellites, we know of a total of 43,454 undersea mountains. Wow. And who said, you know, spending money on space stuff is a waste, right? Here we go. Benefiting the Earth. We're learning what's underneath our oceans. Well, yeah. Seamounts are so rich in minerals and can serve as a habitat for a lot of marine animals. So, in fact, a new ocean survey just got underway with the goal of discovering 10,000 new species of underwater ocean life, which I'm ecstatic about. Um... They have estimated that there are more than 2.5 million different life forms that live in the ocean, and we have only known about 10,000 of them. So it's kind of insane to realize how little we know about the ocean, even though more than, you know, like 80% of the Earth is habitable territory exists in the ocean. Wow. So that covers like 71% of the entire Earth's surface. Yeah, 71% of the Earth's surface is covered by the big ocean. We give it all these different names, but it's really just one big ocean. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we all live on islands. Yeah. It just depends how big our islands are. So we really are. On, on, yeah, I know for sure. One big ocean. Hey, Lily, this Thanks. has been an incredible amount of super exciting and very cool information. Thank you. There's going to be so many more animals. I'm so excited. <laughs> and we're going to find so many new archaeobacteria. Yeah. Yeah. That's so freaking cool. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Lily. Outdoor Adventures. Welcome, Matt Brown and Aura Dena Martz. You're both with the, the infamous and amazing Swim Drink Fish Canada. Infamous in that you're taking legal cases to people who are just polluting the Great Lakes. And incredible because you, you operate on a number of great initiatives. And today we're going to talk about the Swim app. Or do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. And thank you so much for having us. So yeah, maybe we can start by maybe talking a little bit about, you know, what Swim Drink Fish as, as a movement where people uh, connect to the water, collect information about the water, share that information, and then that information can lead to restoration projects, encourage more people to connect with the water um, even more. So specifically, Swim Guide started off creating this platform where Anyone can come and find the most up-to-date information about uh, the water. It was supposed to be a very, very simple, straightforward answer. Yes, this place at this time met recreational water standards, or this place at this time failed to meet recreational water standards. You're sampling beaches, right? We, we use the term beach in a very loose way. So it could be a riverbank, it could be a coastal beach, it could be freshwater, uh, brackish water, it could be you know a seasonal pond. Uh, it can be basically anything that, that someone collects information about that water. If I go onto the app, I can find uh, just information on different parts of Lake Ontario or other Great Lakes. Or I know there's like thousands and thousands of entries across Canada and other parts of the world as well. 2011, uh, Swim Guide was launched with 500 sites only around the Great Lakes. But then through collaborations with the affiliate program, the Swim Guide affiliate program, Swim Guide, I would say, absolutely exploded uh, in the past uh, decade. We have over 120 affiliates, which are organizations and monitoring bodies that share water quality data 
on SwimGuide. And we have over 8,000 points of contact and you can find information for over 10 countries. The way that we see it now, it's, it's a connecting tool to water. Matt, who's collecting the samples and who's doing the testing? Well, it's community scientists that are collecting the samples. Uh, so those are, those are volunteers and it's staff members that collect those as well. But the real emphasis is, is to engage the community. Uh, but all of them would use this, the swim, drink, fish uh, standard of procedure on how to collect those samples and, and how to read the analysis and then share the data. Our, our thing is that we want it to be as transparent and accessible um, to the public as possible. So as many people can learn about the data, use the data, um, and become informed and knowledgeable about it to make the best educated, informed decision about interacting with that specific water body that they're looking into. Uh, and you mentioned at, at the beginning of this, Lawrence, actually about like our, our legal background, and that's how we started. But we actually made the shift from a legal background to a community-based monitoring group um, probably in like 2017-ish. It was a gradual shift and it was something that we saw benefit from, but we also understood that there was pressure on us because the Harper uh, government was really just kind of slashing regulations around the Fisheries Act and Navigable Waters Act and how you went about the idea that we had. Our slogan was, if you pollute, we'll prosecute. Uh, but that doesn't exist the way it did um, many years ago when we started doing this. And we realized that we had to shift our strategy to, to better protect and restore um, local waterways, encouraging to see the way a community becomes empowered when they get that information, when they get to go out and do it. They become the spokespeople and they become the best advocates to push for change in their local water bodies. We always start with transparency, making sure the communities um, can learn and understand and know where um, combined super overflows exist um, when discharges are happening, so when raw sewage is being um, put into their local waters, that's like the number one step of like, people need to know that stuff. Vancouver's went far beyond that. And they've actually implement, starting to implement the infrastructure changes that affect like source protection when it comes to those. And that work, we were a part of the um, project advisory group to, to help the city come to that investment with a, a collection of other community nonprofits and universities. And what we brought to it was the community science angle that, you know, these are constituents, these are taxpayers that are out sampling the water, building this knowledge that they become the best advocates to push their elected leaders to make sure that they are making the right decisions on behalf of the people using the water. Swimming is that first indicator. If you can't get into the water, it means that you likely can't drink from the water or fish from the water. About the water testing, who, who does the actual testing and what are you testing for? Uh, that is our team that does it from our four hubs in uh, Toronto, Kingston, Edmonton, and Vancouver. Coordinators do the, the testing themselves, so they read the samples uh, and then they share them on Swim Guy. So people collect samples and then courier it all over to one of these four hubs? Yeah. Or can you expand on the list of things that are being tested? In a swim guide hub, you would be testing for many things. You, you'd be testing temperature, depth, clarity, the discoloration, pH, dissolved oxygen, uh, solidity, 
you know, there's, there's many, many parameters. People want to know from a recreational standpoint, has this place met the recreational standards to enter and recreate uh, in, in the water? And that is based out of mostly bacterial presence. It could be intracocci for brackish or saline water, like uh, salt water, mm -hmm. or E. coli, again, as a bacteria that represents domestic sewage uh, in, in the water. It is the connection. And I think that's what we need to tap into. All of us have some sort of connection to it. And we all are connected within it. You know, the more people that spend time outdoors, the more people that start to become advocates for um, collectively protecting it. And I think that's the one thing that all these programs that we operate, support, um, and administer all are built around making sure that people have access to water. That is the number one step. That's the first step. Uh, Swim Guide is a great example with our uh, community-based water monitoring hubs of where we're collecting data. The data then gives you that information and that evidence on, you know, what are the threats? What are the issues to specific locations? That's just the, the building of, of information and knowledge. And then it's working with community partners, it's working with government, it's working with corporations, it's working with as many stakeholders as possible to then understand how to address those. Uh, if it's that, you know, there's restoration that's needed, so the water's been polluted and we need to figure out um, forms to stop the pollution and help clean up the watershed, you need to collectively work with everyone using that data information and then that connection brings the passion of more people involved with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's the, the protection side of it. There's also lots of waterways you're going to get to that, you know, are pristine still or are waterways that they need sampling. They need data, data collection. They need more people understanding that, you know, this is a pristine waterway that needs protecting before it, it becomes imperiled. And that is really like, it's the simplest form of ways that we can help protect our waterways. Mm -hmm. We need to understand that, you know, we're all searching for the same goal. It's just that sometimes we're using different avenues to get there. Uh, but if we're doing it together and listening and learning from one another, well, we're going to become a much stronger collective in trying to address um, these issues that, that are plugging our waterways. And, and if it's the fish that we care about, or it's getting on our surfboard. Either way, we need healthy water to do that uh, and to do it in an enjoyable way. So we might as well do it together. There's this sort of awareness of, of answering people's fears, right? Is the, is the water mm -hmm. safe to go in? Like I live in Ottawa now for over 30 years and we've, we've used to release, you know, 25, 30 times a year raw sewage into the river. And a lot of people thought, well, it's not safe to go into that river downstream of Ottawa and it's not safe to eat the fish that uh, live in the river downstream of Ottawa. And it, it sort of had a bad reputation locally. The government finally, after uh, being embarrassed and, and challenged and, and uh, you know, a lot of data that came out, factual data about spills and amounts and so forth, they finally got the money and the, um, the political will to do something about it. But first the people had to ask their politicians, 
do something about this and make it a political issue, make it a, a an election issue. And then the politicians said, you know what, this is super important to the people of Ottawa. We need to invest in it. And so hundreds of millions of dollars went into creating, you know, bypasses for these sewage overflows during storm events. And it was the cheapest way to do it. But it's it's a 99% effective way. So it's it's not perfect, but it's 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 as good as we can get without tearing up the whole infrastructure of the, the older part of the city and replacing all the pipes. It's a combination of like people having a, wanting a quality of life and a good feeling about it, but you need the quantitative data. You need the information to, to give that trust, right? Because really it comes down to trust. Like how do you broadcast this information about the, the results of uh, the swim drink testing? I think a big form uh, that we use is social media helps spread those messages and traditional media through newspapers, radio, um, mm -hmm. to make sure that people understand that, you know, this message that you need to know what water quality is, not because we're telling you not to get into the water, because it actually is the best form to build that knowledge for people to get into the water and interact with the water and care more about it. How do you convince them that this is something they need to take serious and maybe get on board with? I have to say that honestly, I don't feel like I need to convince anyone you know, on the outside looking in, you would think this is a simple program, right? It's a, it's a, a, an alert that you can have on your phone. Is this beach safe to swim at today? You get the indicator that it's good to go or it's not good to go. But there's so much that goes on behind the scenes to, to make this happen. And uh, I think you're just raising the bar, you guys. So keep up the great work. This is fantastic. At some point, and all the beaches will be safe to swim at. And the testing will no longer be necessary because it's always coming back positive. It uh, wouldn't that be wonderful? That that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Work yourself out of a job, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's yeah. the goal, right? That's the goal. That Work is that is very much the goal of I think all of this stuff is you know, yeah. Uh, when when we start a hub, our plan is never to have that that hub exist forever. The, the goal is for the community to take it over and. Uh, I think we're, we're nearing that in a community like Kingston, where we've seen such success of what was a very industrial waterfront is now populated with people swimming, kayaking, fishing, uh, all sorts of recreating in the water. And, yeah. and I think the other side to that, too, is that uh, we want to always acknowledge that like beaches are not just for recreation. Um, it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, in Indigenous nations uh, around the world, beaches are uh, food source understanding the importance to protect that it's not about whether you sweep away the uh, the seaweed that blows up on the shore every day and make it pristine for the beachgoers really because that's you're just removing nature's <laughs> ecosystem by uh, turning it okay. into some sort of perfect playpen for 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 people to go beaching on you know i've been to a, a bunch of beaches in, uh, on the west coast of the united states where they where they practice that you know, you, you just walk over it, you step over it. It's, it might smell a little bit like, like, uh, the sea. It's important to maintaining the beach, the rebuilding beaches after hurricanes and large storms. And it provides habitat, you know, it provides food for birds and, and habitat for other small creatures. So it, it's all vital stuff. Yeah. That's a good point. The West coast, actually it, it, the beaches and, you know, they are kind of their, their calling card have done yeah. a remarkable job of making sure people when you go to the beach, it's it's not just, you know, set up your umbrella and slap your suntan on. A, a popular beach I go to in the summertime, uh, Sandbanks Provincial Park is one of the nicest beaches in Ontario. And, you know, try to find a toilet 
near that beach, you know, an outhouse, and you can walk for 15, 20 minutes uh, to before you find one. They're few and far between. And then one of the beaches is is for dog odors, and the do- and you you have to plug your nose when you're walking uh, in that area because the beaches just smell like a million dogs have peed there for a million years. But, hey, provincial park, sue me if you think I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I think I can hear or typing an email out to them right now. <laughs> you would listen to this podcast. You need to do something. <laughs> I, I, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm a dog owner and, and I, I love my dog. But um, if, if a beach wants to be pet friendly, it has to be a very designated separate area because, yeah, because it's a problem. Hey, you guys, on that note, I'll let you guys go. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Lawrence. Yeah, it was really, really nice chatting. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left, 122 meters. Okay, I've opened up the Swim Guide app. You know, you can get this on Apple and Androids as well. It's pretty accessible. It knows my address. So I had to give it permission so it knows where I am. And then it gives me a list of all the beaches in terms of proximity to my location. So I open it up. We get the menu. Search for ellipses. Text field. There's a search field Double where I can actual material. text. Bookmarks. By your current location. So by my current location, I'll tap your on that. Location. Ottawa Rowing Club Community Monitoring Results Ottawa comma two period six kilometers away. Okay, the Ottawa Rowing Club, two point six kilometers away. That's the Ottawa River. Let's tap on that. Ottawa Rowing Club Community Monitoring Results Ottawa comma two period. Historical status period. This site needs period of beach photo period period. You can send us one using the reporting tool. Oh, they want us to send a, a beach photo. Updated by Ottawa Riverkeeper. Who's who's doing the updating of the water testing? Location, share. So it says location, then share. So I pressed on the share button, so share. I can email the results or the link of the the results to anybody. I can text message it or email it if I hit that share button. And then under that, it just clicks. That's a map button, but it doesn't say map. But I know that because I had someone tell me. And below that is another button if I want to actually contribute information and say upload a picture or make a complaint or. In, ask questions about this speech. I can submit it there. Info. And then there's the info button. Now, this is where it's going to get me my test results on whether it's safe to swim there. So I'm going to tap on info, double tap. Info. The status of this beach was last confirmed by Ottawa Riverkeeper on August 23rd, 2022, 11, 59, 28am period. The status of this beach is green period. Beach. Okay, so I'm at the top of the screen and it says beach. Now that's your back button. It doesn't say back, it says beach, but that's how you go back. Ottawa Rowing Club Community Monitoring Results. Ottawa Rowing Club Community monitoring results next line is sampled weekly from june 14th to august 26th period so it tells you how often they do the sampling historical status historical status the status of this beach is green period oh it's green so the green's good there's yellow which means caution and gives you a little percentage on how many times they've discovered e coli or other bacteria there but green is good this means the beach passes water quality tests at least 95 of the time period so it means the beach passes water quality tests at least 95 percent of the time back to beach at the very top Beach. Go back. Community Mon- Bay Mooney apostrophe S Bay. Here, Ottawa, here's another one. Kilometers away. Mooney's Bay, four kilometers away. I go fishing there. I've done a lot of dragon boat racing there and some canoeing there. It's a nice beach. Bay Mooney apostrophe S Bay. Ottawa. Share. Info. So hit the info button. Info. Bay Mooney apostrophe S Bay is sampled daily from June 19th to August 29th period. Oh, again, well, they stop sampling after August 29th. And, you know, normally that's when the warm water starts to cool off and bacteria is not such a big issue. People aren't really swimming past September 1st. The status of this beach is yellow period. Oh, yellow. This means the beach passes water quality test 6095 of the time period. 
60 to 90% of the time it passes the water quality test. Now 60, I'd be a little bit concerned. I'd be wanting to check this more regularly if I'm using this beach on a regular basis in the summertime before I go down there. When they're doing their testing, I'd want to know. Not a bad little app, swim guide. What's the water quality? What's below the surface? You know, these are things we used to take for granted because we just assumed it was always fine. It was back in the days where everything we touched, everything we did, everything we built was built out of organic materials, wood, stone, grass. You know, that's what we had to work with. We didn't have a lot of plastics and chemicals and steel and cement and other things that could lead to contamination. We didn't have pharmaceuticals and pesticides and herbicides and other chemicals that could cause our water to become contaminated. But we certainly had human sewage. And look at all the plagues that that generated over the centuries. So knowing what's in the waters, like the guys from Swim Drink Fish Canada were saying, it gives you the power to do something about it. And knowing what's down there through these satellite images in terms of the ocean makes us care about it more. If we know there's life down there, if we know this is habitat for all sorts of interesting sea life, we're going to be less likely to dump stuff in there, or test our atomic bombs in there, or use it as a garbage heap to make things go away. Hey, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, the manager of AMI-audio, Zandy Frank. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.